Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. There's a famous breakup line that you may have heard in movies or TV shows. I mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. And the, the line is, it's not you, it's me. Okay? Now, sometimes, maybe in real life, you've heard that or that's been used on you or you use it to someone. Now, whether or not that statement is true, the person saying it means it or not, it's meant to kind of soften the blow, right? I'm not trying to put fault on them. I'm not trying to make this all about them. You know, maybe I did some things and we're just not compatible. It's not personal. It's not you. It's me. Well, today in week four of Legends in the Making, we're going to flip that statement and we're going to declare it's not me. Now, this is not in, any ter- in, not in a dating situation, okay? We're not talking about dating this morning, but uh, we're going to flip the idea of that on its head and say, it's not me. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 today. We're actually going to cover the entire chapter, so all of Acts 14 all at one time. Don't worry, it's not going to take that long to do it. We're going to hit the highlights and see what Paul does here in Acts 14. But what he does in Acts 14 is he makes two it's not me statements. Now, One of them is fairly overt that we'll cover and spend most of our time on the first statement. And then the second one is less obvious, but still just as important and applicable to our lives. So very simple idea today, very simple concept that it's not me. The question is, if it's not me, then what is it? Or if it's not me, then who is it? What's the idea that we're getting at? So we'll look at these two statements from Paul, beginning with his first it's not me statement today. And it's simply... It's not me, it's Jesus. Now you think, oh, that's obvious. We are going to spend probably at least two-thirds of our time on this one uh, because there's some really cool things going on here in Acts 14. But Paul's initial thing that we'll read in Acts 14 is, it's not me, it's Jesus. So we're going to look at Acts 14. We're going to skip down to verse number 8. We'll come back to the top in a little bit. But we're gonna, our main text is Acts 14, verses 8 through 15. And so let's read it here together as we get started. While they were at Lystra... Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, Stand up! And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, notice how they saw that when they saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes since he was the chief speaker. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town. So the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to, town, to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay and ran out among the people, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. 
We have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. So Paul says here, after this miraculous event, it's not me, it's Jesus. Paul and Barnabas find themselves in another town, a new town of Lystra, um, and Paul is preaching. As we just read, he sees this lame man, and somehow something in him, he knows this man has the faith to be healed. He's been lame since birth, never walked a day in his life, and yet something in him is sensing the spirit inside of Paul and knowing, I, I can be healed. And so Paul sees that, just tells him, get up. And there's not a whole lot of, there's, he just gets up. He doesn't talk about it, doesn't think about it, doesn't get a committee meeting together to decide, should I get up and walk? He doesn't ask his friends next to him, do you think I should? He doesn't, are you sure, Paul? You know, he just gets up and walks for the first time in his life. And this is the crazy thing for the crowd to witness, obviously. It's so crazy to them that they think that Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods, now, it's not because they have a physique like me, right, that they think that they're Greek gods or anything. It's because of the miraculous event that they've just witnessed here in Acts chapter 14. This man that they've known probably their whole life, he's lived there their, their whole lives. They know he can't walk. They know he's been lame since birth. And yet now, when Paul just says, stand up, he can get up and run around. And he's, you know, he can walk now for the first time in his life. So they attribute to them these godlike you know, characteristics. So you must be Zeus, you must be Hermes. Now that sounds weird to us, but if you look at the, the timeline context and the geographical context, this makes perfect sense. Because about 40 years before this happened in Acts 14, there was a great, now it's a classic work of literature called Metamorphoses. It's by the, the Roman poet Ovid. So he, this is basically a, a list of Greek and Roman God stories, okay, is what this book is. And it was written, again, 40 years before this happened. So it's in their day and time. They're very familiar with these stories. One of the stories that's in this Metamorphoses book is about Zeus and Hermes. There are several about them, but one of them is about Zeus and Hermes. And in this story, they visit the region of Phrygia. Now, Phrygia is only about 200, less than 200 miles west of where this story happens in Acts 14. Now, of course, the story that happens in, with Zeus and Hermes is not a true story, but the people know this, and they actually have a temple to Zeus, as we read, so they, they believe maybe that this story actually happened. So here's the story. So Zeus and Hermes land basically from Mount Olympus into this region of Phrygia, and they land in, at night, and they're knocking door to door. Now, they look like regular human beings, okay? So they're going from door to door asking, will you let us in for the night to stay with you? It's late and we're travelers. We have nowhere to go. And door after door after door shuts in their face. No one will let them stay with them for the night. So they finally knock on the door of this elderly couple. Their names are Bacchus and Philemon. And they are old and they are poor and they have nothing. Yet they are the ones that let Zeus and Hermes stay with them overnight. So while they're there preparing this meal, they're having food and they're talking and they're conversing with who they think are just normal human travelers, not knowing that they're gods in disguise. They notice that as they're pouring their pitcher of wine throughout dinner, it stays full the entire time. So it's a weird thing and something in one of them clicks and they assume these aren't just regular people. These aren't just regular humans and they assume that they are gods. And so once they're sort of found out, Zeus and Hermes say, yep, we're we're gods, we're Zeus and Hermes, and so they say, you know, they thank them for their kindness to them, their hospitality for them, but then they say, hey, we're going to leave town now, we're going to climb up the hill, and you need to come with us. This is actually a painting of that story that's here on the screen. So they say, you can come up to the mountain, you can come up with us, because we're going to destroy your town. 
because everybody else was so mean to us and wouldn't let us stay overnight with them. So they said, I guess we're going to go with you up the mountain then. And so they go up with Zeus and Hermes up to this mountain, and then they look down from the summit, and they see their entire town has been flooded, it's destroyed. And they see everything has been flooded except for their little shack that's now been turned divinely by Zeus into this beautiful temple. And so these two, this elderly couple is granted to be stewards of this beautiful temple for the rest of their lives. Then they also make um, a request of the gods and they say, if one of us dies, can we both die at the same time so neither one of us is alone? And they say, your wish is granted. So then many years later, after they've been in this beautiful temple by themselves, they both die together and then their bodies turn into intertwined trees. And that's the story uh, here from the Metamorphoses. So this story, again, from 40 years before, has to be in the forefront of the people's minds here in Lystra because they attribute Paul and Barnabas to these two gods who maybe maybe they think this story is actually happening to us, like literally right now. Maybe they really are these gods, and they begin to uh, worship them and bow down to them. They're actually getting the priests from the temple of Zeus right outside of town to come in with the bull to sacrifice to these gods because of this miraculous thing that they have done. So perhaps they believed it. Perhaps it's just part of their pagan ritual. Maybe, we don't know. But they are prepared to ascribe these deities de- if that's a word, personalities to Paul and Barnabas and prepared to sacrifice to them. And then when Paul kind of realizes what's going on, he's like, no, 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 no. You misunderstand this completely. No, no, I'm Paul and this is Barnabas and that's who we are. What we've done is not what we've done. What's happened here was not me, it's Jesus. So he gets this, he gets this in there because of how they misrepresent or misunderstand what has happened. And it seems now, looking back on this ancient pagan culture, they worship idols and statues and things and foreign false gods. That seems really weird, I think, to us now in the West in the 21st century. But to them, it was very normal. To us, it seems silly, but to them, it was everything. We look at cultures that build statues and monuments and worship them, and it does seem kind of silly, And we think of that as being silly now, but even hundreds of years before this happened in Acts 14, God said, yeah, it's pretty silly that people try to worship idols of their own making. And so let's look at Isaiah 44 and and see what God thinks about this idea of serving idols and false gods. Here's what he says. Isaiah 44, verse 9. God says, how foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they are all put to shame. But a fool, who but a fool, would make his own God an idol that cannot help him one bit? Let's skip down to verse 18. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect why it's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and use it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor, deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all, yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? So God makes it very clear hundreds of years before Zeus and Hermes are ever conceived of, the idea of worshiping idols is a silly thing. It's a stupid thing. It's a foolish thing to do. You have this block of wood that you cut the tree down. You did that. You carved it into this idol, okay? You use the rest 
to heat your home and cook your food, and then the little chunk that you carved, then you worship that as a god? Doesn't that seem like a weird thing to do? That's what God says, and it seems silly. Idols seem really weird. Yet the idea behind idols is very powerful. The temptation to worship them is very strong. So much so, even God's people, they escape Egyptian bondage. God leads them out of 400 years of slavery, and the first time that they're left alone for five seconds, what do they do? They build an idol, right? It's like they can't help themselves. They've seen what their God did. They've seen the power of their God, and yet when they get five minutes alone by themselves, or Moses isn't watching over them because he's up on the mountain getting the law of God, they freak out and build their own idol. And over and over and over again, even God's people fall into the idol trap, the trap of idolatry. This other thing seems to provide what I need, so I'm going to worship that. Or I can find what I'm longing for in this other thing or this, this other God, and so I'm going to worship that. It seems silly, but even the best of God's people have fallen into that trap. And as silly as it seems, and as disconnected as it might seem to our day, how often do we practically live that same way? How often do we trust in our income to provide and not the God who gives us the income to provide? How often do we trust our government to provide? That's a really dumb thing to do. Okay, guys, have you never been alive like for five seconds? That's, but people do that. They rely on the government to help them and don't trust in God to provide for them. How often do we rely on our careers to find meaning and worth? I'm valuable because I do this thing. I find meaning because I Go to work here, this important place. How often do we look to relationships for validation when God can provide ultimate validation? How often do we lean too heavily on our education or expertise for wisdom and answers that really only God can bring? We live this way practically if we're not careful. I just need to do more. I just need to try harder. I just need to make this thing happen that I want to see happen. And God just kind of shoved to the side. Well, I can, if I work harder, I can change this situation that I want to see changed. And if it changes, then I'll find happiness, peace, fulfillment. And God just is over there on the sidelines. So like Paul, may we say, it's not me, it's Jesus. I can't do enough, but he can. I can't earn enough, but he can. I can't be enough, but he can. And how, and when Paul says this, think about this for a second. How easy would it have been for Paul to just go along with the crowd? He's literally being worshipped as a god. Like, I could maybe for at least five or ten minutes be like, oh, yes, thank you. No, no, please stop. Oh, please, please stop. You know, it's like one of those things. But Paul doesn't, he doesn't, as soon as, it seems almost, and a lot of commentators say the same thing, it seems like at first, because the people are praising them in, in a different uh, language, they don't really know quite what's going on yet. But as soon as they discover, oh, this is not, this is not good, then they immediately point to Jesus. No, we didn't do this. I don't have power coming out of my fingers. Nothing that I did or said. It's all the power of Jesus working in this man's life. How easy would it have been for Paul to take the credit for this? And in the same way, how easy it is, is it for us sometimes to take too much credit in our lives? Like, look what I've done with my life. Look what I've achieved with my own power and ingenuity. Uh, you know, they, they, can't, they can't make it happen because they don't work as hard as I do. I just work really hard, and so that, that's all about me. Or I'm so talented, or I'm so disciplined, or I'm just really lucky. We turn it inward and make it more about us than sometimes we should. And let me make this connection here to the third commandment. 
So the first commandment is have no other gods. The second command is to make no idols. The third commandment is to not misuse the Lord's name. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. We typically think of that in terms of curse words or what we say. But can I really connect Acts 14 to the third commandment just for a second? The heart of the third commandment is not just speaking God's name wrong, but misusing his name. So here's the connection. Many times when people, even people of faith, live the kind of way that we've just described, make it about me, make it about me, yet I'm, you know, live a Christian living, you know, a Christian life, but it's all about me, that could be misusing God's name. So when we, here, here's another easy way to think of it. What we tend to do is when life is good, I'll take the credit for it. I did that. I built that. You know, I worked hard for that. I earned that, that sort of thing. And we'll sometimes put God to the side when things are good. When things are bad, then I, either, then I try to rely upon me to fix it, to make it happen, to make it work. Or, or, or sometimes instead, or at the same time, I'll blame God for the bad that's happened. He doesn't get the credit when things are good, but he gets the blame when things are bad. It's like being a quarterback in the NFL, you know? It's like you get the credit and the blame. That's just how it has to work. Or what we'll do when things really are in the gutter, then that's when I'll get serious about my faith. Like before when things were fine or kind of even, God was just kind of there, and yeah, I'll go to church once in a while. Yeah, I say I'm a Christian and I own a Bible. I'm not sure where it is, but I know I have one somewhere in a box in the attic somewhere, right? So I'm living this sort of, idolatrous way that misuses the Lord's name. I'm claiming to be this one thing. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect. So please don't hear that. Please don't hear that I'm beating you down, that I'm trying to make, I'm in the same boat. I'm tempted just like anybody else is to live this kind of way. But when we do, it's really a third commandment thing more than this curse word that gets bleeped on TV. It's more of the heart issue of how we view life. How important am I in my life? How much of a main character am I in my life? And how much of a main character is Jesus in my life? Because if we live this way, if we're not careful, we can see God as something to use instead of someone to worship. That's the danger in living this really sneaky, idolatrous way. God is something that I, he, he'll bail me out if I really need him. Otherwise, I'm fine. That's not how we want to live. Let's avoid this modern-day idol trap and say, it's not me, it's Jesus. On my good days, it's not me, it's Jesus. On my bad days, it's not me, it's Jesus. We can really avoid a lot of trouble if we can uh, make that statement that Paul made. The story continues on in Acts 14. So after this miracle happens, the crowd is ready to worship them. But then quickly, like suddenly, in almost a moment, in an instant, the crowd shifts and turns against them. Here's what happens, Acts 14, verse 19. Then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. That's a pretty sudden shift. We go from we're going to bring a bull and slaughter it in your honor as a god to we're going to stone you to death and drag you out of town. That's a pretty severe shift that Paul's encountering here. Look here what happened, though. The, so the people that in the towns they had just been from hated them so much, they followed them to this new town to stir up more trouble. Because we, we, we skipped the first part of Acts 14. Iconium is where they had been. And it's the same thing they've been doing over and over and over again. They, they're sent there. They preach. There are miracles that happen. Some people believe and are saved, and some people want to kill them. So in Iconium, they, there's this same thing at the beginning of Acts 14. Some people are saved and delivered and healed and set free, and some people literally have a plan to stone Paul and Barnabas, so they skip out of town and end up here in Leicester later in Acts 14. 
We looked at last week in the town before in Antioch where they were. There was tons of resistance, tons of opposition, a mob formed, so they had to run out of that town too. So here's how, here's how crazy people can be sometimes, okay? This angry mob from Iconium was 25 miles away. This mob followed Paul and Barnabas for 25 miles to stir up more trouble to try to stone them to death. Even crazier than that, Antioch was 90 miles away. We're talking they're, they're following them on foot for 25 to 90 miles just to stir up trouble. It's not just enough to leave them alone. It's not just enough to run them out of town and we're fine now. No, no, we have to like end them completely. That's how crazy people can be sometimes. Maybe you've met some people who are crazy like that. They'll follow you to the ends of the earth to ruin your life, okay? Don't look at the person you're sitting next to, okay? So they track down Paul and Barnabas, and they're going to finish the job. They stone Paul. I mean, we're, talking, we're not talking like little rocks or like in your fish tank. We're talking stones that you have to like two hands and just, because they're going to probably, usually they're going to throw the person down, and they're going to throw from a high spot. So you can even like roll boulders off to stone people to death. And so they're stoned. They drag, drag him out of town, and he's presumed to be dead. That's verse 19. But here's verse, the first part of verse 20. Here's what happens. It says, but as the believers gathered around him, he got up. And went back into the town. Again, there's a lot here that we're going to cover very quickly. So apparently Paul's not dead. He's nearly dead. He's next to dead. He's bare. Like they're having to watch his chest move up and down. They're having to like get, you know, feel if they're, they, like they can, okay, he's alive. He's there. But he's like severely wounded. He is like severely injured. But as they gather around him, he basically, he's not dead. So he doesn't come back to life. But I mean, as close as you can get without being dead, that's where Paul is. And so he basically gets up, and what does he do? Does he go to the hospital? Does he call an ambulance? Does he say, hey, we're getting out of here because they're going to kill me? He goes back into the town. That is insane. That is crazy. I think only Paul (laughs) would be crazy enough to do that. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how did Paul have the courage to do that? How did Paul have the drive and determination to make that decision? How did Paul have the perseverance to being stoned nearly to death, to getting up and limping or crawling, whatever, back into the town that just tried to murder him? It's because his attitude was, it's not me, it's Jesus. And he felt that obviously very deeply. The great 18th century evangelist George Whitfield, he once said this, I am tired in the Lord's work, but not tired of it. I think that describes Paul very well here in Acts 14. You think Paul was tired? Yeah, he's nearly dead. He was stoned nearly to death. He even writes about it in one of his letters later on. It's something that obviously is going to stick with you for the rest of your life. And yet he had the same attitude. It's not me. It's Jesus. It's his work. It's his plan. And this obviously, this thought, Paul wrote it down later in Galatians 6, verse 9. He says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You might be surprised to hear your pastor say this, but living for Jesus is not always easy. It's not always fun. It's not always convenient. And in Paul's case, it's not always the safest thing to do. There are much safer, more lucrative ways you can live than being a completely committed follower of Jesus. But if you're going to commit completely, don't grow weary in that. 
because you're going to get tired along the way. You're going to have stones thrown at you along the way. You're going to lose relationships along the way. Life is going to be difficult for you along the way. You're going to have moral dilemmas that come up at work all the time. Am I going to be committed to do the right thing morally, ethically here, or am I going to do what my boss wants me to do and keep my job or get that promotion or that raise? I mean, real life stuff here, it's not always easy to follow Jesus, but don't give up in that pursuit of following him. Don't grow weary in doing good. It's his work. It's his mission that you're living out. It's not me, it's Jesus. That's how Paul had the courage, drive, determination, perseverance to do what he did. But also there's one more thing. Another question to ask, how did Paul maintain the right attitude to fulfill the legendary plans God had for him? How was he able to get up and go back into the town that tried to murder him? Because his attitude was, it's not me, it's Jesus. From that came deep empathy. Because think about this, less than 20 years ago, Paul would have been one of the guys throwing stones at himself, right? Literally, we know in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, he's one of the men standing by, watching approvingly, holding the cloaks of people stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr, to death. 20 years ago, Paul would have stoned himself in Acts 14. So he knows where they've come from. He knows how deeply they need the good news of Jesus. And it came from this attitude, it's not me, it's Jesus. He had deep compassion from this attitude. God, God wants to save them. Jesus died for them. Yes, they're trying to stone me literally to death, but Jesus died for them, and he's called me to reach them, so I'm going to go in because the job's not done here for whatever reason. And so the question is, can, can, I, can I reach the rock hurlers in my life? Am I able to do that? Can I limp back into town and love people that hate me? Can I do that? Can I have empathy for my enemies that want to destroy me? The honest answer is, I don't know if I can. But I'm going to try because it's not about me. It's Jesus. If I focus on how they hurt me, what they did to me, how they wounded me, how it's not fair to me, I'm not going to do this. I'm just not. But if I can remember, okay, yes, it happened. It's real. I'm not trying to hide reality. I'm, trying, I'm not trying to put my head in the sand. But God still called me to reach them. It's not me. It's Jesus. As we close this thought and then go to the second one in just a minute, remember these two verses from Paul. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So that's when, when things are good, when things are going great. Remember, we're following Jesus. We're not following myself. I'm not following my ways, my wisdom, my wants and wishes. It's Jesus. It's not me, it's him. Philippians 4, 13. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, remember, Paul's writing this having been you know, stoned nearly to death years before, having been shipwrecked at sea at some point in his life. So it's not just saying that you, I don't, don't take this the wrong way, but sometimes we, we use this verse for too many things, right? Like, I'm going to go to the gym. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? It's, it's kind of deeper than that, you know? Like, I, I'm going to find my special someone. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you know? Like, no, it's more like my life is falling apart I'm questioning everything I believe about who Jesus is, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've got a real issue in my family that I just don't know what to do, and I don't really know if I can forgive them, and I don't know how we can move forward. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've got this issue at work. This person just will not get off my case. My boss just will not leave me alone. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay? So when things are good, remember to follow him. When things are bad, I can do all things because it's not me, it's Jesus. 
Here's the second statement that we will close with for just a few moments here. The second reality statement that Paul makes here is, it's not me, it's us. He makes this indirectly, but let's look here at the rest of Acts, or the next part of Acts 14 for just a few moments. Acts 14, pick it up in the middle of verse 20. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. That's the next town over about 30 miles to the east. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So Paul went to many places and did many things, but all of the things that he did were always relational in nature. So you look at these words that we have in this verse that I underlined. So he strengthened the believers. He encouraged them. He reminded them. Those are relational verbs. They, they include other people, which is why I know we didn't cover this core value this month, but one of our core values is that we are relational. That's part of who we are as a church. We as a church want people to know that they are not alone because life is not meant to be lived in isolation. We're meant to do this together. We need one another. We need community. We need connection because without that community and connection, we're not going to make it. The truth is these two statements go together. I die in isolation. We thrive in relation. That's just how life works. I die in isolation. We thrive in relation. This is true for everyone. There is no exception to this rule. None. Even look at someone like Moses in the Old Testament, you would think, well, yeah, Moses, you know, people needed him for sure. Like they needed him for support, they needed him for guidance, they needed him to, you know, reveal God's will and law. Sure, but Moses needed people too. It worked both ways, even for somebody like him. You look at, uh, at the very beginning when Moses is first called at the burning bush. He says, well, God, I can't do what you want me to do because I'm not a good speaker. And God says, well, I know, but I've got your brother Aaron who is. He needed his brother to do what he could not do. It was relational. He needed that. In isolation, he wasn't going to make it. It wasn't going to happen. He was going to die, but he can thrive in relation. And then all throughout the way, so when they're in the wilderness and everybody comes to him with every single problem, he's getting overwhelmed. God sends his father-in-law to give him great advice. Hey, you need to set up some leaders and they can kind of be your judicial system. They'll handle the things and you handle the top of the top cases. So he needed people in his life in different areas. The most famous story is in Exodus 17 when they're battling the Amalekites. You know, Moses goes up to the top to kind of get a good view of the battle. He's got his staff in his hand. And the scripture says as long as he held the staff up in the air, their people were winning the battle. But if his arms fell, they would start to lose. And so he's holding it for you know, hours and hours and hours, and this old guy, you know, he's probably 100 or more years old at this point, his arms are getting kind of tired, and so they're losing the battle. And so his brother Aaron, another man named Hur, they go up and they hold up his arms until the battle's over. Moses, was he needed by people? Yes. But just as important for him as he needed people around him too. It's relational. Same thing with Paul. Did people need Paul? Certainly. He, he had an important mission, and people needed him. But Paul needed people too. Here in the first part of Acts, he needs Barnabas as his support system, as his encourager to help him along the way. Even Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, traveled with Paul later on, who's a medical doctor, which for a guy that gets stoned to death, nearly to death a few times, he gets shipwrecked and injured, it's going to be nice to have a doctor with you at all times. So he needed people with him at all times. I die in isolation. We thrive in relation. There is no exception to this rule. So don't undervalue what we do here at First Century. It's life-giving. It's life-changing. Don't isolate yourself or you will die. I've, I've seen this too many times. People that try to isolate, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm, you know, I don't need the church and I can do it by, guess what? They're not, I would say, 
none of them are very strong believers, and most of them aren't even believers at, by a certain point when, when they live in isolation. It just doesn't work. It's not meant to work that way. And this is a perfect pitch for small groups as we close. This is why small groups are so important. I didn't even plan this. It just sort of happened this way. I just, you know, it's not me. It's Jesus, okay, literally, like what you're seeing right now. This is the importance of small groups because life's meant to be done in relationship. And that's why connecting with people here is going to help you to thrive in not just socially, but spiritually. It's going to help you in every sense of the word. It's going to help you to grow and not atrophy, not become disconnected and lifeless because we're better together. We're strong. We're united. We're a body. We're an army as we don't live in isolation, but in relation. So it's not me. It's Jesus. Everything is his. Everything I do is about him. That's, that should be our goal, our aim. And then it's not me. It's us. You need me. I need you. We need each other. And together we can accomplish these legendary plans that God has in store for each of us. Let's pray this morning. God, we pray that you would remind us even this week, uh, this important lesson, that it's, it's not me. It's not any one of us. It's, it's you. It's Jesus. Without him, we're nothing. We're hopeless. We're aimless. We're joyless. And so in good times, may we praise you for how good you are. In bad times, may we trust in you and not ourselves. And in all times, may we just live for you because you have a purpose and a plan and a will. And it's your plan. It's your purpose. It's your will, not mine, not ours. It's all about Jesus. And help us to remember it's not me, it's us. In isolation, I cannot thrive. In isolation, I will die on the vine. In isolation, I cannot find what I'm looking for. But together, in relation, we can thrive. We can encourage each other. We can lift one, just like Aaron and her lifted the arms of Moses. We can do that for one another. We can, as we find that connection with each other, we can find that we can build this church into a strong, strong, strong church that you desire it to be moving forward. So I thank you and praise you that it's not me, it's Jesus. It's not me, it's us. Help us to remember that today. Help us remember that this week as we go about our business to seek you first and look out for others around us at the same time to fulfill these amazing, legendary plans that you have in store for each and every one of us. Thank you for all those here today that you would just bless them and keep them this week. Give us a great week this week and bring us back next time ready for more and more of you in Jesus' name. Amen.